0: Good morning. This uh, pulpit was designed for people much taller than myself. So if I get tired, I'm just going to rest my chin on it. (laughs) Such an honor to be here today. And I'm going to do something that I've never done at Sanctuary. And that is step outside of the lectionary text even though the texts today are beautiful. I'm going to refer to the gospel text, or I'm going to refer to the text that was read earlier, because they're beautiful and they connect with where we are. But in this time, I felt like to tell a story bounced off of something that I began last time. And I had written down to follow in this, steer, this direction, and I didn't. And then when Pastor Mark talked to me a month ago, he says, could we do a series together two weeks on sent Our common life in the Spirit, it clicked. Anybody ever have a moment like that? Like, okay, it clicked. So I want to share for you from a text the story of Matthew 5, Fifteen to twenty, it talks about this demon-possessed man who had been kicked out of his own city, and we don't know. Like there was a lot of confusion in his in that day in modern times, what demon possession was. He could have been uh, he could have been mentally unstable. He could have been truly demon-possessed. We just don't know because there was confusion. Because if you were a little off, you probably were called demon-possessed. I would have probably been demon-possessed in the time of Jesus. Because my mother said I was. She's not Jesus. So he's kicked out and he's He's not just kicked out, he's put into chains. And when he's put into chains, he's left to hang out where the dead are buried. And he he roams and lives there. Then all of a sudden, as Jesus did, he's traveling through something. This amazing love drew him to an encounter on a beach. This amazing encounter. Emotional. Like if you read the text, it's emotional. Emotional. He bows at Jesus' feet, and with his love and grace, drew him in and changed him. How many has a moment like that in your life? Many people in this room have these moments that I can point to, maybe a day, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the same, define the same. It doesn't have to be from the same tradition. It doesn't have to be from the same background. But we all, most of us probably, have a moment where we say, "There is when." Raise your hand, I just want got to see this. There's when. Maybe got a year. It might have a date. Or a range. It may have something you were going through. It may have something that you were considering. It may have something that you were pondering. But there on this beach, you have this encounter with Jesus and you're forever changed. Think about it. You're still have to look back, even if you're today cynical and you drug yourself out and there's claw marks from the bed to the bathroom today to get here this morning and you're you're begrudging that you don't have a boathouse and everybody else lake house and everybody else dies. (laughs) Even if you're one of those, you still have a moment where you look back and say, then. And this changed individual, something that that community wanted we believe came out and saw this changed individual at the feet of Jesus, and the text says they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man clothed and in his right mind, and the very man who had had the legion, and they were afraid. They who had seen what had happened to the demon or demoniac and to the swine reported, because those demons all went into a swine, and they and then they began to beg Jesus, please. Leave our neighborhood because we don't understand this. And I'd rather be with something painful that I understand than with something peaceful that's too mysterious and that I don't understand. And so we stand here considering the question Jesus said, Go home to your friends, because here's what he does next. He begs, please let me go with you. And Jesus says in verse 19, but Jesus refused and said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And he went away and began to proclaim. He sent him home. He sent him home. I went through that for four months. That is, that is really tough. <laughs> Beautiful, but tough. And so we stand here asking these questions. He sent him. What does it mean to be sent? And I was remembering... When I was in St. Louis for eight years, I was a youth pastor, then associate pastor, and I did a lot of teaching and preaching there. And every Saturday that I would finish up my sermon, I would go to Forest Park. In Forest Park, there's a university called uh, Washington University. It's a beautiful campus. It's an absolutely wonderful university. And across the street from this university is a coffee house called Kayaks. It's the most amazing coffee house. It was a cool coffee house before there were cool coffee houses. And on the perimeter of this coffee house, there is this wooden banister and bar that I could sit there in silence, in big honking headphones, because we didn't have the little ones at that point, with these big old headphones and block out the world as I prepared sermon after sermon after sermon for hours and hours. I would go there, sit, put the headphones on, and write. And then when I was done, I'd open up and I would hear the buzz of humanity once again because when these went on, the buzz of humanity was gone, and I would write, and then I would open them and put them, join humanity back preparing for the next day. One particular day, I was writing, lost in this, and I'm, I'm on this, this bar, you know, it's got like the stools and you can look across and see the campus over there, and I'm drinking my coffee and writing into my Dell laptop that was maybe that thick at that point, and I'm, and I'm writing my sermon, and, and I noticed to my right and left are ankles. I don't know about you, but that's not what I normally see When I am riding at a bar, at a coffee shop, is ankles standing on chairs. And so I was curious, why do I see ankles to my right? And why do I see ankles to my left? And I take off. And all of a sudden, when I take off these earphones, I realize that once was my office where I was preparing for the world's greatest sermon going to happen the next day that's going to change the world, right? That St. Louis would never be the same when I'm done shucking the corn on Sunday, All of a sudden, I'm in the middle of a speech given by Chelsea Clinton, who decided to stop at this place, and so I'm in the midst of ankles, with cameras, and microphones, and protesters, and students, and supporters, because she was beginning a campaign for her mother. And St. Louis is a place where the vote goes either way. While I was making the perfect sermon, I was missing out on what was happening in the world. Now, I just can't not prepare a sermon so I can go hear Chelsea Clinton speak. She's an amazingly intelligent person. I know that because I've heard her put verbs and nouns together. But I would not give up my sermon prep to go hear her speak. But that's just an illustration. And while I was preparing for a perfect Sunday, with the headphones on, I missed out on what was really happening around me. Does that mean that I ignore Sunday? Ignore it. Because the world it's just a, an illustration anyways, and illustrations like metaphors and simile break down eventually. If you, you whittle them away, they eventually break down. So I've got to stop short of that and let you know, it's just an illustration. But still, do I quit preparing on Sunday so I can focus on what is happening in the world, or do I focus what's happening in the, or do I just focus on Sunday so at least Sunday's good? See, I'd love to take the headphones off and listen to what the Spirit is saying, but that is no easy task. It's complicated. Because there are cultural and philosophical barriers to trying to discern, how do I balance my time in church and my time in the world? How do I make decisions on what is a good use of my time? What is my calling? What does it mean to be sent how do I discern what is too much sweat, equity, given to some others? What is time here given, and it is well spent time? Have you ever considered why the discussion on mission and outreach is difficult? Let's begin, should we? Let's first of all wait through everyone's views on salvation. What does it mean to be saved? Do I even need saving? Some might argue. If you agree that you need saving is salvation just something between you and God or is it something I have nothing totally nothing to do with or is it something that the church has something to do with or is salvation a purely personal thing between you and God do I accept Jesus Christ as my personal savior if so what else should I do some say some some say nothing some have a longer list some say baptism sure is important some talk a whole lot about the holy spirit and they they say it in terms I don't always understand nor agree with to conclude do we need saving From what? If we need saving, because for that will determine how I spend my time and my money. Do our souls need saving or just our dignity need saving or is salvation about filling someone's stomach or clothing someone's back? Which of these is most important? Which of these is right? Finally, is Christian mission really different from other missions? I went to a concert this week. It was amazing. Right? You were there. It was an um, epic. You know they opened this concert with an ad for Charity Water. We give to Charity Water. What makes Christian mission unique? Is it unique? Because We're doing the same thing, so is there something unique about Christian and mission? And out of the overflow of how we define who is saved and how do we get here and how do we go there and what is important and what is not, that is feeding, whether you want to agree or not, that is feeding in what you spend your time and your money and how you view your world around you. And there are hundreds and hundreds of years of theological crisis that feed these debates. And there are 120 years of divide between the American church's view on should I save the soul or feed the body. And on top of this right now you are in the midst of a global cultural war. Just look around you. There is a philosophical war that is spanning from Canada to the United States to Europe to now into Asia now into North Africa it is spanning across the entire globe on the the war between what is it individualism versus collectivism and if you don't think that those philosophical terms affect how we live our lives on a day to day basis every election around the world is centered around these two philosophical divides and people in the church are not immune to reducing life into one of these camps and saying. It's it my responsibility or our responsibility? Is it my personal relationship or is it our personal relationship? What is the church's role? What is my role? That's confusing. So let me suggest a few things. Yes, we make decisions, but our salvation is not defined by one decision. It is the first of many decisions And our hope isn't in the decision we made for Christ. Our hope is in Jesus. Just like the day I got married was a pretty epic day. But I had no clue what I was walking into. (laughs) It was a first decision of many decisions. Was I married the day I said yes? Absolutely. Am I married today when I say yes? Absolutely. Am I married today if I say no? I'm not sure. (laughs) You see, when we reduce our walk with God to just single personal moments that we turn into memories, it leaves the rest of our experience to become an exercise in learning ethics How do I be a better person? How do I live my best life now while we build a subculture that we can understand, that we can control, that we can contain? And the further you get away from the decision that you made for Christ a long time ago, and yet you just say, there's nothing else that happens after that where God is not working in my life. The further you get away from that, your life looks less and less like a walk of faith because there's no trust to it. There's no mystery to it. And there ends up being no church at the end of it. Because, like the mystery of the Godhead, salvation and mission are not a set of polar, opposite, singular decisions of individual choices or collective choices. It is one. Or, it is not one or the other. It isn't that simple. I have a room full of people here who would witness to these facts. Because some of you were changed in a rocket-sweating Pentecostal service. Some of you were changed in a Baptist church. Some of you were started your walk with God in the Jesus movement. Some of you on the ORU campus, many of you Catholic, Lutheran, and Methodist, all of these people have varying, come from varying points of belief, but all of them begin and end at pointing to the central point of our salvation, is that we here, from the front to the back, from the left to the right, have a single hope in Jesus Christ. No matter what we did corporately or individually, you are here because you tasted of the hope in the saving Work of Christ what I'm suggesting is that in the midst of the complex concepts because of history, mystery and many other things we talk about mission we should focus and refocus our gaze on the beginning of mission of saying I have hope in the saving work of Christ simple well what about this I'm working through it we have hope well, what about this? How we're working through it? I have hope. Because if we're not unified around hope, in the saving work of Jesus Christ in our lives first, we begin to do some really selfish and nutty things with mission. Like, I'm not going to say. Oh, OK, I will like turning mission into just simply some consumeristic draw in, get butts on pews and attract them just as if we were a Walmart, just as if we were a Walgreens. We become no different than just some sales pitch to get people and their butts on their pews because we forget that really this thing is very complex and this thing is very mysterious and the people on these pews, everyone from the right to the left is is an individual in a corporate body all trying to figure it out and there needs to be one unifying thing And the unifying doesn't need to be cultural, and it does not need to be American, European, or Asian. It needs to be that we have a single hope in Jesus Christ, and the rest of that, we're walking. Because of this hope, the Christian mission stems from a daily, monthly, yearly formational journey. This is why this is so important. I'm telling you, this is, I've got this naive belief that we could build a church that's multi generational. Huh? Yeah, we could do it. Where 50 year olds actually hang out with 25 year olds because they both love Jesus. But it begins with living a different way of living this gratefulness for the hope in Jesus, the mission then it's not just about reaching them. The mission is me, you, and you, and you. And out of that kernel, that single formational mission produces some collective voice to the world called the body of Christ. It's all of us being formed. In other words, Christian mission, what makes it unique, it does not begin at Charity Water. It does not begin at the food bank. It does not begin at revivals. It does not begin at crusades. I have always hated that word, and you ask me later if you want to know why. Christian mission doesn't begin at feeding the hungry. Christian mission doesn't begin at planting churches. Christian mission doesn't begin at standing up for social justice. Christian mission is unique because it doesn't begin at me saving the desperate other. Christian mission is me God doing a work in me as I walk through a crowd of others. That's what's unique. A Christian mission isn't a goal, it isn't a campaign, it isn't a destination. What's unique about Christian mission is that the formation of the disciple and the sending of the Holy Spirit are not mutually exclusive. It means that when I say we have hope in Jesus Christ, I am saying, I am a disciple, now send me. I am a disciple, but I don't have it all worked out. Send me. I don't have. I don't have know everything. Send me. That is what is unique about a Christian mission, because mission is not just about helping the less fortunate other it is about me becoming a disciple and out of the overflow of that discipleship journey the god's grace splashes on whoever i touch wherever i go whatever gifts i have that's uniquely christian mission consider our text as jesus was getting into the boat the man who had possessed with demons begged him that he might go be with him he begged him, I want to go with you, that you might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's done mercy on you. There's some critical reasons, I think, why disciples who are being formed are always sent First of all, when you look through the text, you never see in Acts discussion of the Holy Spirit without mission coming after it. You don't. You just don't. You can't find one. If you find it, all the cash I got in my pocket is yours. And I got a wad today because I owe my band some money from a gig. There's that. So here's some critical reasons why disciples who are formed are always sent. First, disciples of Jesus are especially confusing and grow increasingly ineffective when they're just seen from afar. (laughs) The text where it says they wanted Jesus to leave, verses 15 through 17, it says, and when they came to Jesus, they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid, and those who had had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon possessed man and to the pigs, and there began to beg Jesus to depart from them. Disciples that just stay on the beach or stay on the boats and are never sent are confusing because they're weird. Or worse, they become ineffective. There's no one to tell the story about what Jesus did. And so the city was just left to make up their own opinions about what Christian, what, what, this man, what happened there. You know, when people talk about Christians are homophobic, my dad is a conservative, holiness, Pentecostal pastor, and I watched growing up as my father took AIDS patients in his church and helped him. When I planted a church in Austin, Texas, it was my favorite story to tell because my dad, who was a very conservative man, but the message of Jesus compelled him to love absolutely everyone, even those that he himself personally did not agree with. But you only know that People who think that about all of us must be people. We don't like people of a different race. We don't like people of different beliefs. We don't like people that aren't like us. They only get misproven when we are with them, not just down on our beach celebrating what Jesus did here. Furthermore, the longer a disciple stays in a static state, there could be a temptation to make the encounters of God, whether they be spiritual, intellectual, physical, a destination rather than a catalyst where we're sent. Meaning, church is about this is where we live rather than this is a catalyst to send us where we live. And what's left? Let me tell you this. This is just my own opinion we're left to become a slightly less cooler version of those we are, we are supposed to be sent to reach. Jumping from fad to fad, relying heavily on talent, prism, and surface, almost Bono, but not quite. Almost U2, but not quite. Almost Walmart, but not quite. Because the church was never designed to just simply be another product that we hustle on the shelf for people to choose from. The church, while there are cool people in it, while there are amazingly gifted people in it, the most gifted people, while there is great music, while there are smart people, while there are organized people, while there there are creatives, while there are all those things, those are overflow of simple one thing. We are a disciple. That's what makes our mission unique? Finally, disciples are effective up close because they're being formed while relying on the Holy Spirit to work through them. I understand why the demon possessed man did not want to go back to his town. I also understand why he wanted to stay with Jesus, but I really understand why he didn't want to go back to his town. A place where Jesus said, They're your friends, right? Friends, Gregory, the Dialogist says, if a legion of demons has been, as I believe, cast out of me, I would prefer merely to forget all of this that I have known and simply the rest at, rest at the feet of Jesus. But lo, it said to me so strongly as to compel me against my will, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Think about what lay ahead for the demon-possessed man. Everyone knew him. He retold the story of his past every day, whether he wanted to or not. Because everyone knew where he came from and everybody knew who he was. He was a contradiction every day he walked out of his front door. And we see this over again in the text. Peter he preached a pretty epic sermon on Acts chapter 2, and yet just a few chapters later, you're going to see him as the Holy Spirit crashes into him and forms him a little more and says, you thought this message was only for a certain group of people, but I'm going to have you step into the Gentiles' home and I'm going to have you preach that same message and see something you didn't think can happen. Let me push you a little further. Then you're going to return and testify to your own brother that you can't deny that God's doing work in places you never thought That he would. Formed people that are being sent. You'll be sent first, not to the world. Usually, we're sent to our world. That's why I think missions for Africa, missions for Colombia, a country that I have a love, passion for, begins with how I get up every day and say, form me here in Tulsa first. Because nobody in Colombia knows that my breath stinks at 7.30 in the morning, that I have a temper, that I am controlling, that I am aggressive, that I'm insecure, that I struggle with trust. Nobody in Columbia knows that. Everybody at Allied does. Everybody in the Binion Home knows does. See, Jesus sent the demon-possessed men, but Jesus said... The Father would send the Holy Spirit to us as a teacher and a comforter. Do you know why I think the definition of a comforter is? I think it is because when we're sent, He's going to teach us and comfort us as we walk through the place that is the most formational process for us. Whatever you find your hand to do it, it will be connected to your giftings. It will be done at the right time in the right season, and it will, even if it is something that many others are doing, it will point to an invisible God. But let me tell you something. He's going to be your teacher and comforter because you're walking in your own neighborhood and you're going to need a comforter to say I have sent you here You know why I think we need the Holy Spirit is because we gotta be dependent on the Holy Spirit to lead and comfort us in a way that redirects our ethics, our values, our dreams, our wants to focus on thy kingdom come and for thine is the kingdom and the glory forever and ever, amen. I can even turn a religious activity into a self-centered exercise and to a program of control, songs, a lust for favor of humanity, ambition. I can do even the most religious things of that if I don't have the Holy Spirit constantly forming me saying, I am sending you, I am making you, I am molding you, always changing, always rubbing, always growing, always changing, because that's what a missional disciple is. That's why I think we need a comforter. Not just to make me feel good on Sunday. I need a comforter because once I'm sent and I'm walking in shoulder to shoulder in my day to day, the comforter says, i put you here. You see, when we understand the relationship between being formed and being sent, it confirms that we're not dependent on talent, on finances, on race, on ability, because it begins and ends with a formational process within every disciple in ordinary daily living. The final thing is those being formed are sent, but they can't help say, come and see. There's probably 305 here, 304, maybe 280, depending on the availability of lake houses this weekend. But I know the averages, because I see them. If that 280 becomes 500, a1,000, whatever it becomes, 2,000. It's going to depend on disciples here who leave here being sent, but are so committed to what God is doing in their life and their hands at the working table. but they don't just stop there. they also say, "Come and see." Because there's not just one person here, I love the people here. Our Midtown small group is amazing. It's superior. Let me just say that. It's superior. (laughs) I'm joking partially. I promise. They're amazing to hear what they're going through and hear what you're going through. I've got to know some of you in a very intimate way, and I think you are amazing. I am a fan of you. And you know why? Why? Because I see gifted people in all different ways, all kinds of intellect, all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of things in this one room, and all of us committed to one thing. We have hope in Jesus. Through the overflow of a disciple, it says it gives grace freely, expecting nothing in return while still inviting everyone in the body. Come and see. It's creative because you are creative. It's passionate because you will be passionate. It's clarifying because you are sensitive and evolving. This call isn't intimidated to partner with others we don't agree with, and it's not, it's not intimidated to lead new things, to walk in new places, to stay in some old places because the mission is us in us, happening, changing, molding, forming. And it's not one moment. I have been, I felt personally being sent from the beach to the town over and over in my short life. 23, 18, sent to OU. 23, felt like I was, took a youth pastor job to St. Louis. My wife and I had been married six months. Moved to St. Louis, felt I was sent. Then I get sent across town, a whole other part of my formation. Then I go plant a church in Austin, Texas, and because I love eating three, day, three times a day or more, or more, because I love eating three times or more, I work in an elementary school, the absolute best job I've ever had in my life to this day, absolutely the best job. In a school that spoke 92% Spanish, I speak zero Spanish, talked to a mother for six months until her son finally told me she doesn't understand one word that I'm saying, <laughs> It was awesome. (laughs) Then we come to Tulsa, and I find myself for my entire adult life doing formal church ministry. I wake up every morning and I go to a company that I lead a majority of it and about to lead all of it, figuring out what are you doing in my life now? And I know I'm not alone. There are people in this room. That are being sent into that metaphorical city where God is saying, I'm demanding your full trust on me, your attention on me, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell my redemptive story in you like no one else can. Maybe God's sending a father into new places and a mother. Maybe God is sending a young married couple. Maybe God is celebrating your singleness. Maybe God is sending an activist, a teacher, and sending. And and and, and you're not going to not do charity water. You're not not going to feed the homeless. It's you're not going to ask people to come here. You're not going to you're you're not going to quit baptize or you're not going to not baptize people. It's all of those things, but those are not what it is. It's what we're going to do is begin by saying I am a disciple and out of the overflow of this discipleship injustice is going to be confronted mouths will be fed backs will be clothed people will find God and renew their faith the gospel will be preached businesses will be started cities counties countries continents will be reached but it begins with simply common everyday living being led by the spirit Sense.